On this episode of Society's Waltz, we'll be looking at ballroom dancing prior to World War II and the effects it would have on public perception of the UK in Britain, as well as how this time period changed the public's view on dance as a whole and brought dance to the levels of popularity it's at nowadays. I'm your host, Grace Leishman, and welcome to The Waltz. to guess that most of the people listening to this have studied World War II at some point in their life, whether it be for fun or for school. But you would have to be truly naive to not know the, the general history of this world-changing event. However, with all of history, there are parts of it that we tend to gloss over or don't talk about at all. Since to the majority of the world's population, it seems insignificant to the grand scheme of things. Those things usually surround the social climates at the time, or just how people would live their lives every day, overshadowed by the battles and massacres that leave a much more noticeable scar on the world. But for every war, there's the lead-up to the main event, and for World War II, that lead-up was the rise of nationalism within the countries across the world. And in the case of England, there is no better place to see this than the dance cultures of 1920s and the 1930s. To help show the true influence of social dancing in England, I'd like to introduce Valerie Wilson. Georgina Wilson, and I am Grace Leishman's grandma. We will be following the story of her parents and their experiences with dance before the war. And with any good story, we must start at the beginning. In our case, that would be when they would have been introduced to ballroom dancing for the first time. He, when he was about nine, I think, his, his mom married a second time. His first her first husband died, and she'd had four kids, I think. And um, then she she married again, which was, and that was my dad's dad, and he was in the air force. So my dad, uh, as a as a, a preteen, I think, uh, got to go and live in first of all in Egypt, and then he lived in um, uh, India after that. And he would have been in the in the Air Force in those countries. So I would imagine that he would have um, had, had been exposed to to the dances at, at the back, you know, at, the, at in, in the club and that there, because uh, he did a lot of things like he played tennis and swam. And so I would imagine that he would have learned how to dance there. Um, and my mom, I would, I, I don't know, I don't know if if. Um, they had, she wouldn't have gone to formal lessons, I don't think, but I think my mom would have, been either, either the Victor Sylvester, you know, taught, because they got all the new steps in there. Remember that, if you read that Victor Sylvester article, he introduced the new steps as they came in, like the Foxtrot and, uh, um, and some of the other ones, um, and they would have just taught each other, I guess, or they would have had a little bit of, you know, people teaching them at the time. Although in the case of my great-granddad George, his story may be much more unique than many at the time, Hilda's story was much more in line with how many people at the time would have been introduced to these dances in the first place. 
Unlike nowadays, families around the time of the First World War would have loads more aunts and uncles from previous generations, all with their own sets of kids. The average family around 1860s would have been around six kids, who would have all gone on to have their own kids in around the 1910s or before that, which would have been an average of three kids per family. All I'm trying to say is that these families were huge, so it wouldn't be uncommon for, say, one of your aunts to be over at your house and teach you a dance from their youth, or even a dance that was more popular during that time. That was actually something that happened to my grandma when she was younger. And I never learned ballroom dancing, but I remember my Aunt Kath in, in the early 1950s teaching me how to jive to Elvis Presley's blue suede shoes. So that was kind of the end of it. ballroom dancing. It pretty much, um, it, it, it went on until the 70s, but for, for my generation, it was not something that we picked up. Anyways, we can already see the association of dance with one's identity during this time. So you can imagine what that would do to a population's perception of their national identity if there began to be a push to have dance to be more in tune with what they would say was the taste of British audiences. Which was exactly what began to happen in the years after World War I. You see, prior to World War I, ballroom dancing had been a pastime reserved for the rich and powerful citizens of the British Empire. It was elegant and graceful to watch, and was seen as a much needed skill within the upper classes for social events and such. However, that changed at the end of World War I, when England's general public turned to dancing as a way of celebration at their recent victory. There was a similar effect on the recent victory around the world, and soon enough these countries had begun to develop their own so-called style of dance, America being one of the main culprits. So when a conference was held with many famed ballroom dancers and teachers to try and standardize ballroom dancing across Britain, it wasn't something that one would pay too close attention to. However, there are some underlying biases within the attendees at the meeting that showed the true feelings of many of those there. You see, among those attending was a very famous American exhibition dancer and teacher who had decided to voice his thoughts on how they should standardize the steps and upon sharing his opinions, he was hit with backlash from a group of people attending. According to Philip Richardson, founder of the Royal Academy of Dance, the comments made were along the lines of what right has an American to attempt to teach English people to dance? Although his suggestions did end up getting passed, this incident would only foreshadow the general public's perception on foreign styles of dance within the British dancing community. Over the years, the standardization of styles to make them more suitable for British audiences created a sort of English style of dance altogether that was extremely reminiscent of ballroom dancing pre-World War I. This style was focused on the simplicity and gracefulness of the dance 
making many steps much more basic than their original forms, so they would blend with the ideal English style. This need for the perfect style created somewhat of a superiority complex within the British dance community, and many experts stated that the new versions of the dances that were remade for British audiences were superior to the originals. However, the true danger of this type of thinking came from how it would affect the general public, who would hear these opinions on a regular basis reinforcing ideas that were extremely close to nationalism and patriotism. I said that because many of these opinions centered around national pride of the English ballroom dancing style, and the idea that the British dance teachers knew best. And to add on to that point, many people had extremely fond memories of these dances. They would be something that you would grow up with and basically become a part of your identity. So the idea that the ones who had taught and made these dances were, in more extreme terms, all-knowing, wouldn't have been all that outlandish of a thought. This attachment to these dances would become even more prevalent with the increase of couples meeting at dances, something my great-grandparents can greatly relate to. My mom and dad, uh, met at, I know they met at a dance because uh, I remember them talking about it and I remember my dad saying that uh, He'd taken, he'd gone on his bike, and um, that it, I, I think it was a rainy night or something, and uh, um, it had been quite hard to get there, and that would have been probably around, um, uh, that would have been the late 1930s, because they got married in 1940, so it would have been a couple of years before then, maybe, or, or a bit before then. Um, and that was in London. They were in London, and he was stationed at a, um, a barracks, Hendon Barracks, um, before uh, at that time. Actually, for my great-grandparents, their attachment to ballroom dancing followed them till the end of their days, with both my mom and grandma recalling how much dancing had been to the both of them. In about 1978, they moved to Vancouver because I was living in Vancouver at the time. And the, again, they, um, they would go to the Legion uh, on Saturday nights for dances. Um, and then um, and my mom got ill. And so I imagine that dad would have stopped for a few years. Although when she was hospitalized, um, he would um, have... Uh, probably on his Saturday night gone to the Legion and danced. And then he kept that up until, after Mom passed away, he kept that up uh, till about 93. He died in 96, but he kept it up till about 93 when, you know, he had a Parkinson and he couldn't, couldn't um, uh, do it anymore. Dancing was an escape from the tragedies of life for many after the war. But for people like George and Hilda, it was something that held true importance within their lives, all the way until the very end. A bittersweet note to end on for sure. But this attachment to dance was a big reason why dance is so popular as an extracurricular today. If you grew up spending a lot of your free time at these dances, having arguably the best time of your life, it would make sense for you to want to pass that joy on to your children. 
and for many, that came in the form of sending your kids to dance classes, effectively increasing the demand for dance schools across Europe as well as North America, and allowing for so many more kids to be introduced to the joy of dance. I think it's fairly safe to say that dance has both influenced and been influenced by this interwar era. From being the reason for my great-grandparents meeting, to being the host of the ideas of nationalism and patriotism before the Second World War. The true reaches of this community is far wider than it's fairly given credit for. Once again, I'm your host, Grace Leishman, and this has been Society's Waltz. Thank you for listening to this episode of Society's Waltz. Make sure to subscribe so you'll always know when a new episode is out. And I would like to give a huge thank you to my grandma for allowing me to use the story for my episode. <laughs>